and welcome to another magical Saturday stream. I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we're going to be investigating the enigma of one of Fire and Blood's most elusive characters and the last member of House Strong. Wink on that one. That is, of course, Lord Laris the Clubfoot. Sort of an amalgamation of several different schemers from the main books. Obviously, Varys Littlefinger, the Shave paid a little bit, and quite a few other characters who play, and quite a few other characters. Laris ends up playing a pivotal role in the Dance of the Dragons from beginning to honestly end. Last week, we talked a lot about Blood Raven and how similar he is to Laris Strong, and we'll be exploring that in a little bit more detail today. And also how Laris should not only play a major role in House of the Dragon, the upcoming HBO show, which you guys should all be excited about like I am, because of how much House Strong's going to be on the screen for once, but I think he also does a lot of double duty here as major foreshadowing for several characters and plots in The Winds of Winter. You know, Laris is all about that hustle. <laughs> He's doing everything. He's work, working for one show. He's working in another book. He's foreshadowing for a book that hasn't even come out yet. You know, he's a relatively important character in a meta sense and somebody that there's a lot of value in paying attention to. Oboe soon. Yeah. Cue the oboes. I'm positive it's not an oboe. Somebody corrected me about this. No pumpkin spice seltzer. I didn't do that. Although that is for sale from Bud Light. You can buy a Bud Light pumpkin spice seltzer. God help us all. Hey, guys going before you get going you know just some some more promo stuff as per usual if this is your first time here make sure you hit that subscribe button and hit the bell button for notifications youtube is very bad about sending those out so if you don't have even if you subscribe it may not tell you when i go live unless you hit that the bell thing and say allow notifications also slam that like bucket button bucket <laughs> like bucket yeah i should get a like bu bucket and just like put it right here Drop some likes in there as we go. You know, YouTube is a, a very fickle mistress and it relies on signals from the viewers that you are liking what you are watching. So slamming the like button always helps. As per usual, we get 150 likes during the course of the stream. I will put on the George R. R. Martin hat, the very special one, which is out of reach at the moment. It's kind of <laughs> kind of across the room. But yeah, 150 likes, you guys slam it and Spend the rest of the stream wearing that. We get to 200 like we did last week for Blood Raven, and we're going to go full magician. We're going to go full Gandalf Hedge Wizard style. It's going to be great. And, you know, share the stream anywhere, anywhere you can. Appreciate it when you guys do that. Upcoming stuff, you should expect to see Chapter 6 of Dying of the Light read through come out around the 15th. What's today? The 11th? Yeah, I should, that'll be out around the 15th. And Chapter 7 of Dying of the Light will be around towards the end of the month. So get ready for that stuff. I haven't decided what we're going to be doing for the next stream yet. I put a link up. You'll see it at the end of this one. It, there's a feature where YouTube allows you to specify where you're going next. Um, not really sure what it will be, but it will be in two weeks, not next week. I have to unfortunately work this coming weekend. So just going to skip a week. That's how it goes. Um, Maybe more on Blood Raven, maybe more on Laris. There's a lot here. I tried my best to include everything, but there's a lot of content about Laris, especially stuff that's not especially service uh, surface level. Oh, did I get new patrons? Hang on a second. Join. Yes. Thank you to for joining to my patron at patreon.com slash Joe Magician. Rachel Webb, the Archmaster. Uh, she signed up. Thank you very much, Rachel. Appreciate it. 
Wait, she told me a special Wait, a second. I just forget the name. Lady Rachel of House Webb, distantly related to the Webbers and Lady Rohane, I assume. Oh my God, you guys are talking about those seltzers. I saw them in the liquor store and I just went the other way. They were gross. Oh, super chat here from a cracking queen, 25 PLN. Excited about the Lara Strong stream. As always, thanks for the great content. No, thank you, cracking queen. Appreciate the, appreciate the tip. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of Laris today. I was reading, rereading stuff over the last few days and seeing all the different connections and the way George is using him. It's, he's probably the most well-developed of any member of House Strong in the story, except for the, the secret ones that me and Amanda think are true, like Dunk and Brienne and those kind of characters. But he's also very different from the rest of them. So this is a good one. Oh yeah, and if you want to support me, obviously there's Super Chats available. There's links in the description for other ways like Patreon. I think my PayPal's in there, maybe. I don't know. I know Danny McKay sent me one before we started. Thanks very much, Danny. Peace sign right back at you. And also, yeah, my Patreon, patreon.com slash Joe Magician, where you get access to uh, content early. You get to see behind the scenes stuff, like outtakes from the Dying of the Light stuff that Marion. Actually, I have another one of those that I have to post that I haven't done yet. I'll probably put that up after the stream. So all of the good things. And with that, sl slam that like bucket. <laughs> Let's get going here on old Laris. And we got the perfect quote here. And this is one of those things that George tells you that this you should be thinking a lot harder about Laris than you are when you're reading Fire and Blood. Obviously, that's where he shows up the most. Here's the quote. The enigma that is Laris Strong, the clubfoot, has vexed students of history for generations and is not one we can hope to unravel here. Where did his true loyalty lie? What was he about? He wove his way all through the dance of the dragons on this side and that side, vanishing and reappearing, yet somehow always surviving. How much of what he said and did was ruse? How much was real? Was he just the man who sailed the prevailing wind? Or did he know where he was bound when he set out? Good, good questions, George. Yeah, it would be nice if he'd answer them a little bit more directly in Fire and Blood. But, you know, it's a challenge to us as a reader. Who is Laris? What does he want? George has given us the clues in Fire and Blood. Let's see if we can unravel a few and see if we can make sense of the, of the club foot himself. So the first thing to acknowledge at the start of the stream is that Laris should play an important role in the upcoming House of the Dragons TV show. Alongside Mysaria the White Worm, Laris fills the primary role of the Master and Whispers that we saw in Game of Thrones. That was obviously Varys, Littlefinger, Kyburn, a little bit of Bran at the end was doing that kind of thing. But I think he's going to be different from the other characters in particular. Varys and Littlefinger because Laris is a character who increases in importance as the story goes on. At the beginning of the dance, he he's not that important. You know, when you when you start Game of Thrones, Littlefinger and Varys are at the height of their powers. They have their maximum everything going on when we are introduced to them. They're in control of their spy networks. They're in control of King's Landing, all those kind of things. That should not really be Laris, at least based on the set photos and the timeline we're looking at. This is going to happen before, at least from the set photos, it looks like this is before Damon and before the dance starts proper. So you should be looking for him to be more somebody like Kyburn, somebody who starts at a lower rank, but as, as a function of attrition of the rest of the members of court and skill at his job, that he should be end up 
rising in influence and his ability. It's going to be sort of thing where he's just going to sort of be there as a background character. And then you're going to get like a season or two and you're going to be like, wow, Laris is behind everything. How is I, I didn't. My goodness, he's just everywhere. That that should be largely the trajectory for the character. Yeah. <laughs> Shake your fist at George for not answering questions about Laris. Although he sort of does. That'd be fun if somebody got a chance to ask him about him at a con or some sort of event when those end up happening, though. He should be a key feature of the narrative, especially the one that focuses on King's Landing. He largely doesn't leave it throughout Fire and Blood, except for just a few times. Although I'm going to put a caveat on this. He probably is not going to rise in importance past what we saw from Littlefinger and Varys. You know, he's going to be a driving force behind plots and manipulations, doing dirty work behind the scenes, providing exposition and information for the rest of the characters but he's not going to be a lead he's not going to you know they're not going to push him out there as a major character and they haven't thus far we don't even know if laris has been cast i assume he has been but on the first wave of characters hbo pushed out no laris strong but he's definitely going to be one of those characters that is secondary but a very important secondary character especially you know, as you get into the riots and as you get into the manipulations around the end of the dance, that should be when he takes the biggest amount of uh, screen time. Dornish Dame, I wonder if they'll set him up in opposition to my sorry in the show. Definitely. I think that's definitely going to be on the page. I mean, on uh, in the cards, as it were, that um, you should expect to see him and my uh, dueling essentially sort of like Varys and Littlefinger. Although that was one thing that was kind of played down in the in the show. They were at the beginning and then they just kind of diverged. My and Laris should be in opposition to each other pretty much the whole time until Mysaria's death. Spoiler alert, Mysaria dies. So let's go into who is this Laris Strong character. He's another entry in the long line of how strong streams at this point. And perhaps the last one for quite a while. I'm unsure if I'm going to do a Lionel Strong one. There's not a lot of information about him. And it's unclear what kind of role he's going to have in the show, if he's even been cast. Some people have speculated that I think Graham McTavish might be Lionel Strong, maybe. It's kind of unclear. But as we get closer to House of the Dragon and more castings are made obvious, you know, that could, should become more clear and that could change. You know, maybe we'll revisit these things, you know, hopefully. So Laris has been the character, though, that lurks in the shadows of all the others. The member of the family excluding possible ancestors like Duncan Brienne, who gets far and away the most time on page in development as a character, and yet he is the most unlike the rest of the Strong clan. He could not be further from the rest of them. So Larry Strong is the second son of Lord Lionel Strong. Now, the second son aspect of Laris is something to pick up on immediately here, just right away. George uses this designation to create certain expectations for second sons in terms of motivations and what they'll be doing in the story and not just the sellsword company you know second sons in westeros struggle mightily to find their place as they are often seen as superfluous or spares or often just ignored unless the family is incredibly wealthy they will be unlikely to inherit anything from their parents unless accidents happen in front of them they often try and become tourney knights or they try and join the king's guard maybe become cell swords, that kind of thing, because they're not going to get any holdings. The other thing they try to do often is they try to marry daughters of lords and use that to try and get themselves something as a dowry or to inherit it later. But yeah, it, it's 
it sets up an adversarial relationship between the second son and the rest of his family. And that's no different here for Lara Strong, in particular because Strongs are not a powerful house. Oh, hang on a second. <laughs> they are powerful right now within Fire and Blood for because Lionel's Hand of the King. But as I discussed previously, they've been able servants to the Targaryens going back to Aegon the Conqueror with Osmond Strong serving as his Hand of the King and being one of the primary river lords who turned on Hair on the Black during Aegon's uh, invasion. But they have not really been rewarded with lands and wealth. They have been given recently Hall. However, they do not have the lands or the vassals or the armies to support the blackened ruin of the fortress, making it again, as I've said before, Hall is essentially a white elephant gift. Um, I think that's the term for it. It's, it's great to have, but you have to be super wealthy and powerful to be able to maintain it. And they, they're not. That's not who they are. And as we learn later in Fire and Blood, there's actually a lot of members of House Strong in the area. So as a young man growing up, there would have been a lot of competition for attention among himself, his cousins, his second cousins, his siblings and bastards. You know, that's the whole thing about the Strongs is they end up creating a tremendous amount of bastards. So there would have been Luca Moore, the Lusty's descendants there. There would have probably been bastards from Lionel. That's what Alice Rivers is rumored to be. There's Simon Strong and his sons, bastards from them, more cousins. There's just, there's like a fray amount of Strongs hanging around Hall. So it's hard to stand out. Liet Rubenseld, how is he different from the rest of the family? We're going to get to that one. Don't you worry. Yeah, it's a high man. It's a high maintenance castle and they don't have the money or power. Remember when Heron the Black built Hall, he did it with three kingdoms to support it. And when you're given Hall afterwards, you're basically just given the castle and the lands around the God's eye and said, make it work. Well, you can't make it work because it was the way you properly maintain it and arm it is you have to essentially use slave labor like Aaron the Black did and three kingdoms worth of income and looting in order to do it. They don't have it. There may be a curse too. Yes. Yes, there may be a curse. I disagree on the curse, but you know, being given something you can't afford to keep is a curse in its own way. Just a monetary, a monetary leeway. I think that's a word. Hey, it's a word. I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's right, Mally. The second something makes me think of Amanda's Great King Theory. It's a recurring theme from the small scale to the mythical scale throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Second sons are fucked over. And it ends up being a primary way that George motivates a lot of his characters. It's known that Lionel Strong and his predecessors did manage to create a small fortune for themselves, but, you know, not holdings to go with it. Throughout their time, they did not acquire the lands around Hall. They didn't take anything back from the uh, the toys in order to make it palatable to essentially repair or man Hall. And that's another thing. They were not able to repair it. It doesn't even look like they tried. If you could repair it, this would actually be a way to make it so that you're the, the second sons and the cousins and stuff like that have something to do. Because Hall is so large that each one of the towers is basically the size of another castle in Westeros, a good sized castle. So in theory, you could just kind of chop it up if you could repair it and give each tower to a different son, give each one to a different uncle or something like that with all of it under basically a small seven kingdoms. They can't do that because they don't have the money. So alas, Alaris is getting nothing out of this deal. Harwin's in front of him. And there's no reason to think that's going to go the other way. 
So Laris grows up in being Laris grows up in the shadow of being a second son whose older brother Harwin Strong, aka Breakbones. What's unclear here, and this is something I'd be interested to know, is are they actually brothers or are they half brothers? Lionel Strong had at least three wives and four children, including two daughters. So it's quite possible that Laris and Harwin had different mothers. It's never noted in the text, though, that they're half brothers. So I think the assumption you're supposed to make is that they're not, but it's certainly something that could be true. That could be something that comes up in House of the Dragon, especially since that's literally the plot of the Dance of the Dragons, is that it's half-siblings that end up going to war with each other. That would be kind of interesting to see. We learn nothing about his sisters. They basically disappear from the narrative. No idea what happens to them. Okay, they're just gone. Hall leaves you house poor. That's right, Great Waste Tim. It is not a nice place to own. There's another complication before as I mentioned before, and this gets back to Liet's question about how is, he, how is Laris different. As I've mentioned before, the Strongs are historically known as great warriors and soldiers. Lucamor Strong in particular, he's the first introduction of the family in the narrative, and he is a realm-renowned warrior. He beat down everybody. He was, he was particularly lusty, but he was also an incredible fighter, as big and strong as a blonde bull, as he's called. Alongside you have Harwin Strong, who again gets the same, he's almost like a Gregor-like figure. Lionel Strong, his father, is again described as a giant muscle-bound fighter. If you look at the possibility, characters who may be secret Strongs in the current timeline or after this, you get Duncan the Tall, you get Brienne of Tarth, maybe the Cleganes, maybe Robert Baratheon from Lucamore's Children ending up at Storm's End. You know, the list goes on and on with the Strongs that... They're supposed to be these big, imposing fighters. That's their thing. And then you get Laris. Laris, who's born kind of spinely, not that big, and he's born with a clubfoot. So if you're not aware of what a, a clubfoot is, it's basically when a child is born with one of their feet that is bent downwards and inwards rather than laying flat. It makes it really, really hard to walk on. This sets him up. This sets up Laris immediately as an outsider in the rest of the Strong family, as those with severe untreated clubfoots like Laris have trouble just walking, never mind the precise footwork you would need for battle or riding or all these other things. So he's kind of cut off from the family history and the lineage. He's, he's apart from them. And in that way, Laris lives in one of George's favorite themes cripples, bastards, and broken things. This is very, very common within the narrative. Characters that have some kind of physical impairment or they're just not fitting into the society they're born into, in general or within their family, they have this a real struggle to make a place for themselves. That's what happens to Lairs. And a quote uh, actually from Littlefinger from the show immediately comes to mind. Uh, this is Littlefinger talking about his duel with Brandon Stark. He said, you know what I learned? Lear you know what I learned losing? Wow, tongue twister. You know what I learned losing that duel? I learned that I'll never win, not that way. That's their game, their rules. I'm not going to fight them. I'm going to fuck them. Wow. That's what I know. That's what I am. And only by admitting what we are can we get what we want. And there's a, another quote here from Tyrion Lannister. This is from early on in Game of Thrones. He's talking to Jon Snow. He says, 14 and you're taller than I will ever be. My legs are short and twisted, and I walk with difficulty. I require a special saddle to keep from falling off my horse. A saddle of my own design, you may be interested to know, is either that or ride a pony. 
My arms are strong enough, but again, too short. I'll never make a swordsman. Had I been born a peasant, they might have left me out to die or sold me to some slaver's grotesqueries. Alas, I was born a Lannister of Cashley Rock, and the grotesqueries are all the poorer. Things are expected of me. My father was hand of the king for 20 years. My brother later killed that same king, as it turns out, but life is full of these little ironies. My sister married the new king, and my repulsive nephew will be king after him. I must do my part for the honor of my house. Wouldn't you agree? Yet how? Well, my legs may be too small for my body, my head is too large, although I prefer to think it is just large enough for my mind. I have a realistic grasp on my own strengths and weaknesses. My mind is my weapon. My brother has his sword, King Robert has his warhammer, and I have my mind. And a mind needs books as a sword needs a whetstone, if it is to keep his edge. Tyrion tapped the leather cover of the book. That's why I read so much Jon Snow. So you, you can apply this, this passage, I think, directly to Larry Strong. He has the same problems that Tyrion has within his own family. Not as extreme, you know, but the same kind of role and the same kind of way that he's going to have to try and make his name in a way that is unusual. I, th- I do think Tyrion is definitely a character you're supposed to think of when you read Laris along with Littlefinger and Varys. You know, he's amalgamation of all these different characters. It's not one for one. He's not exactly like Tyrion. He's not exactly like Littlefinger. He's not exactly like Varys, but he kind of sits in the middle of them. I can imagine, in particular, a quote like this, a, a version of it being said by Laris in the show when he pops up, if he tries to explain himself, which they may have to do because they're going to have, they're going to have, if they're going to have to do exposition on him. So something like this would make a lot of sense. Especially the idea of his father that's a hand of the king, the way that his brother has his sword. You can think of Laris thinking about how Harwin has his strength in his sword. You know, it all kind of lines up. You can see George putting effort here to, to make sure that you think of these different characters when you think of Laris. So this places Laris in the place that if he wants anything for himself in life, he's going to have to take it himself and sets up an easy idea of resentment of his older brother who will get everything in Harwin. We often, we very often see this in the narrative from characters as different from Jon Snow to Euron Greyjoy to Tyrion Lannister. What this doesn't tell us though is how Harwin and Laris actually felt about each other. Fire and Blood gives us no direct records of their interactions, so we're left to speculate. Purposely by George, again with his question, what do you think Laris is about? Well, so let's go through this. So the relationships we can draw from right off the bat are Jamie and Tyrion. Harwin is the big, brawny, powerful fighter who gets everything, and it's entirely possible that maybe he felt protective of his younger brother as Jamie did for Tyrion. Maybe he greatly enjoyed his sharp mind and wit, as Laris is also known for having. He's they it says in Fire and Blood that he has a, a glib tongue. Again, that sounds like Tyrion who's known for basically just cutting people apart with his with his cruel jokes apparently laris does the same thing you know although a main difference here is laris is often known for being quiet preferring to listen rather than talk although when he did as i said he tro- he showed pre- tremendous wit this is something he may have learned from his father lionel who was known for talking slow in a way that many mistook for stupidity it was a way that lionel got people to underestimate him it made him speak less, but the words he did say would have great meaning, basically. There's also an idea here that the way that Laris feels at the end of Fire and Blood, well, his story in Fire and Blood about his clubfoot, does bear a striking resemblance to how Tyrion feels about his dwarf. It may be intentional 
again from George to have the audience make the obvious parallel here for Harwin and Laris to be like Jamie and Tyrion. But it's also quite possible knowing how Harwin is a bully in the melee, is getting his nickname Breakbones for intentionally injuring people, and that he's a gold cloak known for abusing his authority and size to get what he wants. You know, he was a he's a corrupt knight. He's a sort of a Gregor-like figure and one who lived on impulse. So it wouldn't be surprising if Harwin didn't suddenly get to King's Landing and started acting like a dick to everybody. He very easily could have been like this in childhood. And Laris is an obvious target for abuse, especially because he's so unlike the rest of the warrior clan of the Strongs. You know, a weakling who couldn't fight back against breakbones. That's the kind of person that bullies go after. Somebody that they can screw with somebody that has no chance of fighting back. That's what they like. Tyrion gets more action than Laris. That is kind of a, a, a thing that does not show up in Fire and Blood. We have no idea who Laris is attracted to, if he's attracted to anybody. You know, is he asexual? Is he... Who knows? It's, it's just not on the thing, but it's not on the page. But if you're thinking of Tyrion, it may be something similar. Maybe he found his way to the brothels too. Somebody, I think Carl Karsnark brought it up earlier in the chat that this is very much the idea of the the Fisher King, the the person with the injured leg. Bran has the same kind of. This is why I brought up Bran. There is a similarity between them, and perhaps their roles and the way that they interact with the world, especially going forwards. I am not versed enough on Arthurian stuff to really talk about the Fisher King and the connections, but I know they exist. So maybe ask. I bet Lady Gwyn would have a lot of good information about that. Or you guys in the chat, throw out there what you know about the Fisher King. I'm sure Laris lines up with a lot of them. But Jess B says, I feel like it's similar to the Greenseer thing. If you are intelligent in Greenseer's case magic, you have something else, probably physical wrong with you. You can't have everything. Yeah, that's that's sort of the idea. The George loves the idea of having characters pay for their magic with some sort of law in their life, some sort of shortcoming. Like Eamon, he gains his wisdom by losing his sight, basically. Bloodraven, much like Odin, loses one eye to gain his powers. You know, Bran loses his leg, loses his ability to walk, but learns to fly. That kind of thing. It's a it's a recurring constant thing. And especially true of somebody like George, you know. He he was not able to do the same thing the other boys could, but he turned to reading. You know, that that speech about Tyrion, about how he needs to sharpen his mind, that's largely how George felt growing up too, so. Laris gets the same kind of treatment here. There, going back to what I was talking about, maybe Harwin and Laris's relationship was much more adversarial. Maybe it was a bit like Gregor and Sandor. And certainly Laris's later life and career choices, being a torturer and master of whispers, points to somebody who had to learn to fight back in a unusual way in order to get his way. Like you can imagine that that to get out of his being tortured or being bullied by the other Strongs, or Harwin in particular, that Laris had to learn to get back at them and fight back in his own way, a little bit like Littlefinger. A quote about a Littlefinger learned his own way of fighting after he got defeated by Brandon Stark. So it could be a very similar relationship there for Laris. That's another one. It could be Littlefinger and Brandon Stark could be what you're supposed to think of with Harwin and Laris. And there's another intriguing parallel that comes from last week, Bloodraven and Bittersteel. Especially if Harwin and Laris are actually half brothers instead of full brothers. Now, Bittersteel was older than Bloodraven. He was physically strong. He was a physically he was bullied. 
I mean, he was a bully. He did bully Bloodraven, who was weaker. He was thin. He was albino. He had that weird, I forget what it was called, the not the scar, but the uh, birthmark on his face. You know, Bittersteel took joy in, in punishing Bloodraven when he could. And Bloodraven essentially developed as he was in response to Bittersteel's torturing and his bullying. Again, this is this forced, yeah, this force within Bloodraven and what we see within many of these characters to embrace his mind and subterfuge as a way to get back against a much more physically strong tormentor. You know, learning the passages of King's Landing, how to spy, how to inflict pain on people. You know, the lesson that Varys has later in the books where he says the value of a man's letters are more valuable than his vault. You know, the similarities between Bloodraven and Laris minus the magic are pretty straightforward. They seem very, very similar characters, especially how they essentially turn the Red Keep into their own personal holdings underneath the, the ruler at the time. You know, that's a way to think about Bloodraven and and, and Laris. There's a question, why didn't Laris go back and take control of Harrenhal? Well, why would he? He owned the Red Keep and uh, Magor's Holdfast and all the dungeons. That's his, those are his lands, the same for Bloodraven. And, you know, given how Bloodraven and Bearshield both ended up on opposing sides of a Targaryen civil war, that seems a little on the nose. And you could say that like, oh, this, that, that's not like Jaime and Tyrion, but you know, it could be. It looks like Jamie and Tyrion are also going to end up on opposite sides of a civil war, most likely, with Jamie backing Cersei and Tyrion backing Daenerys at some point. And you know, they used to be quite close, but their relationship has soured since the death of Tyrion of a uh, Tywin. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. Jamie and, and Tyrion. I mean, yeah, Jamie and Tyrion could be the path for Harwin and Laris. Uh, yeah, that's right, Greyways. Tim. Spiel mad that Bloodraven got to be a court, unlike the Bracken people. Yeah, that did happen. There was definitely jealousy between them. Bittersteel liked to take it out on Bloodraven by trying to beat the shit out of him. Very possible Harwin did the same to his younger brother. It would not be... It's not impossible, to say the least. So we get Laris learning a trade. After serving as Master of Laws, his father Lionel Strong is made Hand of the King to Viserys I. After, dis- after the dismissal of Lord Otto Hightower, and Lionel brings his children with him to King's Landing. We have no, as I said, we have no information on the strong daughter- daughters, but Harwin and Laris are not allowed to just be idle members of court going to tourneys and feasts to pass the time like so many lordlings do. Lionel puts them to work. Harwin is made a captain of the gold cloaks under Prince Daemon Targaryen. Probably there is to spy on Damon and to see what's going on with the gold club. But what happens to Laris? What job is he given? <laughs> He's given to the confessors who are the torturers and jailers of King's Landing. That's that's interesting. It seems Lionel wanted his songs that wanted his sons to have jobs that matched their aptitudes. Like Arwen's size and strength made him an ideal life enforcer for the gold cloaks. So that sort of it's the idea that Laris had a natural aptitude for causing pain to people because that's what the confessors do. They torture people to get them to confess to things and to get information out of them. It's kind of strange, but I guess Lionel just embraced the fact that his son was a little psychopath and gave him a job that suited it. The work of the confessor is much closer to what we see from Kyburn when he tortures the blue bard for Cersei for information, less what we see from uh, Littlefinger and Varys. If they engage in that stuff, it doesn't really show up on the page too much. Kyburn is the better comp here for what Laris would have learned 
as he got his job in the confessors and moved his way up. Think Kyburn. Yes, please uh, slam that like button. So I get to wear a silly hat. You know, it takes a special kind of psychopath to want to be a good confessor, to know how to inflict pain, to know how to get information out of people. And it's also, these are also the guys that largely carry out the horrible things, the King's order. So for instance, like the tearing out of the tongues side note here, when Viserys takes out the tongues of the five silent Valarians for rightly calling Rhaenyra's children, not Valarians. It's highly likely that it's Laris personally who ripped out the Valarian tongues. He would have been carrying out this stuff as a confessor. So during this time, Laris also starts taking on the role of Master Whispers alongside his torturing duties. He began learning every nook and, cr- nook and cranny in King's Landing and the Red Keep. Now, this is very, very evocative of Blood Raven and Varys. Both spent huge amounts of time learning each secret passage constructed by Magor the Cruel. As Lord Confessor, it was also Laris's job not only to inflict pain, but to extract useful information. That's the main part of the job. So it makes sense that Lord Confessors often overlap with Master Whispers. Also, he probably would have been in charge of the Black Cells and every deep place in the Red Keep. Again, this is Varys who pretends to be Rugen the Gallower, the Jailer, whatever that word is. Except he would have just done it explicitly. That would have been his job. And while Lionel ruled the front end of the hand of the Red Keep as hand and the realm in general, and Harwin ruled the streets of King's Landing, Laris began expanding control over the King's Landing underworld. It also seems extremely likely, this isn't explicitly said, but Laris learned during this time to be a master of the skies like Bloodraven and Varys, as despite you know his identifying clubfoot, he's known to be able to disappear and for months safely and not be found until he wants to so you have to assume not only is he good at using the tunnels and the secret passages but he can just shed Larry strong and become another person almost at whim that's something he has you know it's a logical assumption to disappear in king's landing you have to be able to have secret places but also be able to disguise yourself as Varys often does like that's one of the fun things in uh, in the books is that Larry is that Varys shows up in Tyrion is completely fooled by his mummer's disguises. So similar thing here. Dornish Dame says, for someone who lacked the physical presence of his brother, being a confessor gave this gives Laris power over the fate of others in a way he likely would not have had otherwise. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's his way of being the opposite of Harwin. You can just sort of see them diametrically opposed in that way. Everything that Harwin is bad at, Laris is good at, and vice versa. So that's kind of where we are towards the start of the Dance of the Dragons. So the biggest moment early on in Laris's story is, and highlighted explicitly in the text, is the idea that Laris may be a kinslayer. When Harwin and Lionel are burned to death at Harrenhal, the text points the finger to a lot of people, but one of them is Laris as perhaps being behind the fire as a way to amass power for himself to becoming Lord of Harrenhal outright. Yeah, he's like, he's a better Gene Parmesan. <laughs> That's right. I was actually watching clips about that last night. I love Lucille Bluth's response. <laughs> she goes, ah, every time Jean shows up. It's amazing. I've discussed previously why I think the motivation presented here to be Lord of Harrenhal doesn't work well because Laris doesn't take advantage of it. He doesn't return to Harrenhal. He doesn't use the power that comes with it. He basically ignores that he's Lord of Harrenhal. He basically allows Simon Strong, his uncle, to be effective Lord of the Castle in his absence. 
Simon's really the Lord, not Laris. He doesn't do anything with it. So the idea that he would kill his father and brother to gain Harrenhal seems ridiculous. That doesn't seem like a strong motivation. But that doesn't mean there's not a motivation. Just that the one in the text may be incomplete. Bloodraven also gets the suspicion cast on him often, as I talked about in the previous stream, that he killed family members for his own gain. This is sort of a thing with Astro Whispers that they're so ruthless anybody's game. The gain for Bloodraven killing member of the Targaryen family, I think, is just as nebulous here as Laris. Like Laris clearly felt that he was that his lordship was not Harrenhal. As I said, it was King's Landing. He's the Lord of the Red Keep. He's the Lord of the Tunnels. He's the Lord of the Underworld of King's Landing. He doesn't give a shit about Harrenhal. He knows it's a it's a crappy place to own. This is also something that happens with Littlefinger, where he's named Lord of Harrenhal and <laughs> But he doesn't do anything with it, because what would you do? Uh, actually, Isabel Lamego just made that point exactly right. It is just a title. He doesn't take ownership of it. So I don't think that's a really good pump. Like Littlefinger takes the Lord of Harrenhal, takes the Lordship of Harrenhal, but that's not really what he wants. So let, if Laris did have a hand in Harwin Lionel's deaths, why would he even do it? Like, what's the point here? So there's a couple arguments you can make here. First off, as I said earlier, we don't know much of anything about the relationship between Laris and Lion uh, and Lionel. But seeing as George has given us cause to link Laris to Tyrion, there's certainly a possibility that the relationship was like Tywin and Tyrion, more adversarial. You know, Tywin gave Tyrion jobs too. He was not allowed to essentially be idle after a certain point in his life. You know, he was made master of coin. He was made surrogate hand of the king. And before that, Tywin even gave him the job as you know, to take care of the cisterns of Cashley Rock. And he did all this while despising his son with every fiber of his being. So the idea that Lionel giving Laris a career and a job does not mean that they liked each other. In particular, the lack of prestige and the horrific nature of the confessors certainly speaks to the fact that Lionel may have known the truth about his son, that Laris was a very disturbed individual and that he enjoyed inflicting pain on other that would certainly lead a father to go like, wow, this is not a guy I'm a fan of. Or he could have been essentially embracing what he knew about Laris's nature and gave him a job to match. You see a similar thing with like Roos and, and Ramsey Bolton. Like Roos is just like, all right, well, you know, Ramsey's a psychopath who likes killing and skinning people. So I'm just going to accept that about him and lean into it. Yeah, Scott LaRock, Littlefinger is Lord Paramount of the Trident. That's the actual title he wants, not particularly Hall. That's just the castle he's given, but the, the, the Lord Paramount is the actual cool thing, which Laris does not get. He just gets the Lordship of Hall. Wait a second. I'm going to double check this. Littlefinger is Lord of the Trident, isn't he? I thought, I thought Walter Frey got just River Run. I didn't think he got Lordship. No, Peter Baelish is Lord Paramount of the Trident. Yeah. Baelish got it, not Walder Frey. Walder Frey got River Run, but the castle is not the region. So that's certainly a point of contention between them. That's on the table. And for Harwin, you know, there's a very real possibility that the two brothers may have been close, but had a breakdown in the relationship during Lionel's time as Hand of the King while they're both in King's Landing. But over what? Well, maybe not a what, maybe a who, Princess Rhaenyra. It's mentioned in Fire and Blood that Lionel did try and get his son Harwin married to Rhaenyra before they end up doing it anyway. They get functionally married underneath Lainor's nose. Well, not really. He appears to it. But 
Anyway, he ends up being the functional husband to Rhaenyra. And you can assume that with the whole part of this, there were probably a lot of balls, social events, tourneys, where Lionel attempted to get Harwin as close to Rhaenyra as often as possible to try and enforce the marriage, get them to like each other, get them to know each other. You know, he probably saw breakbones as the best way to try and secure the royal marriage for the Strongs to the to Princess Rhaenyra, which is very common within hands of the kings. However, the fact that he's doing this, there's no mention he's doing this for Laris. You favor Harwin and Laris, who may already have kind of a complex about being a second son, may realize that he's not being pushed forward to try and marry the beautiful princess Rhaenyra. You know, he's kind of a strange guy. He's quiet. He's a torturer. He's got his club foot. He lacks the size and good looks of Harwin. I mean, the picture I used for the from Fire and Blood, Laris is, does not look like an attractive dude. It's never said that he is. So you, who knows? Maybe, maybe Laris developed a crush on Rhaenyra. Maybe he sort of fell in love with her from afar and grew envious of those that she chose over him, similar to Littlefinger feels about Catelyn. You know, that would solidify a lot of the Littlefinger Laris comparisons if Catelyn Rhaenyra played similar roles in these dangerous men's past. You know, as Master of Whispers and Lord Confessor, he would have spent a lot of time basically cataloging Rhaenyra's life and her secret life and her affairs. You can imagine that perhaps a young Laris got an unhealthy obsession with her. Like this is a running theme in the Dance of the Dragons that men who feel spurned by Rhaenyra end up on the opposite side of her. They end up on the other side of the war. And that's one of those things that's for Laris, it's like, what the hell is he doing? Why is he on the side of the Greens when the rest of his family is ostensibly on the side of the Blacks? Well, if he hates Rhaenyra because in, the, in a similar way that he feels that he feels entitled to her, that he feels like whatever affections he has weren't being returned. That makes a lot of sense for where that resentment may have come from. I think it's, I think it's interesting and kind of a medicine what George is doing here because there's a distinct lack of information here about Laris and Harwin's relationship. And it seems like he's kind of expecting you, the reader, to already be familiar with A Song of Ice and Fire and then use those as comparisons. So when he's referencing Tyrion, when he's referencing Littlefinger and referencing Varys, well, you're allowed to essentially think of, well, is there something between them? Like when you think of Laris and Littlefinger, maybe you should think of the, the, the not just Laris, you should also think of Catelyn and Brandon Stark at the same time. Maybe that's the relationship between him and Harwin. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing on the page. That's George's point. He is not going to tell us what's going on with, with Larry Strong. So it's a, it's a fun theory crafting bonanza. I would certainly fit the spurned, the spurned little finger character. That would make sense for if he had a problem with Harwin and why he ends up on the side of the greens. You know, yeah, super, it's super petty. Yeah. So is Littlefinger. Littlefinger is incredibly petty and so is Kristen Cole and so is Alicent, and so are people on, on Rhaenyra's side too. It's a, it's a petty, stupid war over personal rivalries. So it wouldn't be that surprising if instead of having like some grand philosophical reason for supporting Aegon II, that for Laris, that it was something very personal, that there's a personal hurt for why he's going against the rest of his family. And 
if you think about it, let's let's say Laris does have a crush on Rhaenyra for whatever reason and feels spurned by her. Well, think about what happens when his older brother not only he he learns as essentially the growing master whispers that it's his brother that is Rhaenyra's primary squeeze. And not only that, but they're having children that he's become like her personal shield. You can see this perhaps enraging Laris with jealousy. You know, Fire and Blood offers that offers the the idea that it may that Laris sided with the Greens over the Blacks because of some kind of shame on how strong. But Laris is a torturer and master of whispers. I doubt he cares about the honor of his house. But a personal grievance could be a very good personal motivator and a big one for why he does what he does. Of course, you know, again, that is just speculation, but George invites us to speculate, so I am doing so. So if you want to make the argument that Laris is behind the fires that killed Arwen and, and uh, Lionel, I mean, I personally think it was Damon, but here it is. A personal grudge from Laris against his brother and his father, being treated as an outsider and a disappointment for not be, for not fitting into the historical prototype of the Strongs, maybe some kind of jealousy at Harwin's relationship with Rhaenyra, creating a desire for revenge. And perhaps even Damon exploited that and used Laris's connections back home to get the murder done. You know, if you wanted to add some proof to this idea that Laris did it, well, the fact that Simon Strong is allowed to rule Hall and that Laris basically ignores it is pretty strong evidence pointing this way because you could see that as a payment for the murder of his kin, that Simon Simon lit the fire at Laris's behest, and as a reward, he gets to essentially play at Lord of Harrenhal. That could work. And, you know, there's another strange thing that even after all this and after the Greens come back to court and they take back control through Otto Hightower, Laris is allowed to keep his position following the deaths of Harwin and Lionel, even though they were on the side of the Blacks. For some reason, Otto Hightower felt that he could trust Laris to remain Master of Whispers instead of getting rid of him. So you're looking for signals that perhaps the Greens were behind it or knew Laris was behind it. That could be one, that there was an acknowledgement that he was willing to kill his father and brother. And that makes him not on Rhaenyra's side, or maybe they even knew of his, his personal grievances, perhaps with Rhaenyra. That, that's one possibility if you want to make that argument, I think that sounds pretty reasonable and lines up again with characters like Littlefinger and Tyrion's, you know, the killing of Tywin and his, his problems with Jaime. You don't have to go far to draw those examples into Laris. They seem pretty close. Yeah, a lot of petty things going on in the Dance of the Dragons. That's right, Aaron. It's basically a big petty war. You know, court politics that blew up into a countrywide civil war. So we're going to skip forward here to the Green Council. Now, this is the moment where the Civil War, quote unquote, began. Following the death of King of Ceres, the Greens with Otto Hightower hold a meeting of the small council where they discuss how Rhaenyra should not be queen and they should crown Aegon II, instead her half-brother. As well as claims that as soon as Rhaenyra becomes queen, you know, she's going to probably going to kill all of them or strip them of their position. Notably, during this entire council, Laris is silent. He's just sitting there listening. This is typical of Laris. We know that he's tips, he tends to listen and think before he acts. So it's hard to know exactly what's going through his brain as all this is happening. But knowing his later behavior, he's probably weighing his options. I talked about it at length that maybe Laris bore a grudge against his father and brother. 
but it's certainly possible that he had a lot of affection for his sibling and his father and was upset at their deaths on another if it actually was damon who who had arwen and lionel killed if laris found out well found out it was damon and corley's behind the murders and that they are so prontly pro or near that could explain also why laris ended up on the side of the greens he wanted revenge at them for killing members of his family it doesn't have to be resentment you can also make an, an argument for how he ends up on the greens that he loves his family and that he's upset that they were murdered although there is a teensy problem with that and that is that laris did nothing to protect his brother's sons in jace luke and joffrey you know maybe there's some kind of lingering hatred of rhaenyra that made him not want to do it but it's certainly a flaw in the idea that he joined the greens out of revenge against damon and corlys if that's true then he should have done more for those three so you can the other things that are probably going through his mind is that you know if he joins the greens and they lose he'll be made the scapegoat he is basically a non-existent lordship of Hall. again this is shades of Littlefinger that makes him vulnerable he has no loyal vassals he has no knights he has no soldiers that will back him or make it politically dangerous to just hang Laris out to dry if the rebellion doesn't go well it's unclear if the rest of the strongs would defend him they don't seem to have much of a relationship again it's very similar to Littlefinger and Tyrion and Varys who know that their positions are extremely delicate collapse at any time if they end up on the wrong side of a war however you can also assume that he's aware that if he tries to go against the greens during this castle he will likely be killed why because that just happened Kristen Cole killed Lyman Beesbury for speaking out against the plot so Laris even if he doesn't want to be on the side of the greens he's held hostage because he knows all of his power and all of his scheming does nothing when Kristen Cole locks the door and holds a sword to him so no matter what he probably has to he probably has to publicly side with Aegon II no matter if he doesn't feel that's the right course if he wants to survive which he does so Lara speaks up at the end and he proposes a blood pact this is kind of crazy quote goes Lord Lara's strong master whispers then spoke for the first and only time let us be the first to swear he said lest there be traitors amongst us drawing his dagger the clubfoot drew it across his palm a blood oath he urged to bind us all together brothers until death unto death so each of the conspirators slashed their palms and clasped hands with one another swearing brotherhood queen allison alone amongst them was excused from the oath on account of her womanhood okay weird thing to exclude allison i didn't know women could make blood oaths or blood packs weird thing so this certainly speaks to his devotion to the greens or at least his devotion against the blacks, which I'm guessing is actually the truth of it. Although you could definitely see this as performative, that where senses he's in danger and that he needs to try to appear to be their biggest supporter and suggesting something as extreme as a blood pack certainly will assuage any fears that he's going to turn on them as soon as he gets out of the room. And, you know, it's extremely unlikely that Lyrus would personally consider this binding. You know, his profession means that he often lies and, dis and deceives people to his own ends. So, yeah, probably, probably not. I tend to fall on the side that Laris is joining the Greens, not because he believes in the High Towers or Aegon or anything like that. He's doing it because he's against, he personally does not like Damon Corlys or Rhaenyra or some combination of the three. And that's what's going on here. There's really hint. There's not really hints of why he feels such loyalty to the Greens throughout the war. You know, he's not offered lands, he's not offered marriages, but spite 
and anger are powerful motivators, even if it's not devotion. Oh, thank you guys for liking the stream so far. Got 140, 150 people. It's bouncing up and down. Thank you guys for hanging out. Yeah, make sure you like the screen, stream, subscribe, do all the things. It should be noted, though, that there is a sense of distrust of Laris. That even though he proposes this blood oath and takes actions that can only be seen as pro-green in the war to come, some of the greens seem to think he's up to his own agenda and can't be trusted. This is borne out primarily with Aemon One-Eye. Later, when he descends upon Harrenhal, the Strongs plead with the prince. Hang on a second. Oh, this is actually a quote. Oh, I'm sorry, this is a quote. I didn't write this. Uh, so this is borne out primarily with Aemon One-Eye. When he descends on Harrenhal, the Strongs plead with the prince to leave them be that they are loyal. We're like Laris, we're Aegon's men. First to suffer for it was Sir Simon Strong. Prince Aemon had no love for any of that ilk, and the haste with which the Castellan had yielded Harrenhal to Daemon Targaryen convinced him the old man was a traitor. Sir Simon protested his innocence, insisting that he was a true and loyal servant of the crown. His own great-nephew, Laris Strong, was lord of Harrenhal and King Aegon's master of whisperers, he reminded the prince regent. These denials only inflamed Aemon's suspicions. The clubfoot was a traitor as well, he decided. How else would Daemon and Rhaenyra have known when King's Landing was most vulnerable? Because you marched out the gates and rode your dragons, you dipshit. Someone on the small council had sent word to them. Laris clubfoot was Breakbone's brother and thus an uncle to Rhaenyra's bastards. Am I streaming with Rhea Westeros today? No, I am not. I forget what they're talking about. They're streaming at five, though. So to logically think this out, Aemon thinks that Laris may not be loyal because of a lingering love for his nephews by Rhaenyra and that him, he may be working against the cause of the Greens. On the page, there's no reason to think this. Laris has been nothing but loyal. So this may hint to the idea that Aemon, among with others in the Greens, are aware that Laris and Harwin were perhaps not bitter enemies, that Laris perhaps did value his family and was upset at their murders. Otherwise, there's little reason here for the suspicion, and it also may indicate that Laris did not kill his father and brother, because if he did, there'd be no reason to doubt his loyalty to the king over his family. Like, that's the ultimate display of, I'm on Team Green. Look, I killed my brother and father. What else could you possibly do? But, you know, Aemon's also a distrusting psychopath who murders people at a whim, so maybe Aemon isn't the best guess here, but there's certainly a lingering sense that the Greens are not sure what to make of Laris. Even if he's on their side, it may be that they have similar enemies rather than similar goals. It's on Tyrion. Oh, cool. Good timing. Laris and Tyrion, similar characters. Nailed it. Didn't mean to do that, but that's where we are. So I think the next thing to talk about here is blood and cheese. This is an important one. So the primary conflict that should show up in the show, Hot, uh, House of the Dragon, or Hot D, is that Mysaria the White Worm and Laris, they are both the spy masters for the opposing sides, with Mysaria serving Daemon and Laris serving the Greens. And each work in the shadows and underbelly of King's Landing against each other. Very, very similar to Littlefinger and Varys. And this comes to a head with the story of blood and cheese. A brief description of the event, because it's horrifying. After the death, after the death of Prince Lucerius at the hands of Aemon One-Eye at Storm's End, supposedly Damon sent orders to his spy mistress Mysara in King's Landing to go get even. Mysara hires two men, Blood the Butcher and, she and Cheese the Rat Catcher. 
They sneak into the Red Keep using Cheese's knowledge of the secret passages and finds Queen Helena and her children, Jaharis and Maylor. They take them hostages, and the two men tell Helena she must choose which son lives and which dies. Helena chooses, chooses Maylor as the one to die because he was younger. Blood then turns around and cuts off Jaharis' head instead right in front of her. Yeah, Blood and Cheese is incredibly fucked up. I am not looking forward to seeing this. It's going to be just awful. Maybe they'll do it off the screen, but I would doubt it. So supposedly what happens next is that Blood gets caught. He's a giant of a man and a, and a former gold cloak. He was apparently trying to escape King's Landing with the head of Jaharis to bring it to Damon at Harrenhal to collect a bounty, I guess. He's given over to Laris, who then tortures him for 13 days to get information out of him. Blood during this time gives up that it was Mysaria who paid him and, and that paid him and Cheese to do it. Although Cheese, the rat catcher, is never found. Afterwards, Aegon II has all the rat catchers in the Red Keep and the neighboring area hanged and uh, replaces them all with cats instead to get rid of the rats because I guess the rat catchers weren't that effective anyway. So why, why bring this up here? Why does this matter? Well, you'll forgive me for noticing that she sounds a lot like Lara Strong. Certainly rat catchers would know the secret passages, but we are told that nobody knows them like Lara Strong. And actually the quote here from Mushroom said that she's knew the red keep better than his own cock. Again, Laris is the living master of all the passages. He knows every single one, like Varus and Bloodraven. And he's skilled at deception and acting in disguise just like Varus, because we know later he disappears completely. So could Laris have been involved with this somehow? Could he, he have been cheese? I think it's possible. This goes back to his uncertain motivations. And you know, nothing in the Dance of the Dragons makes Rhaenyra and Daemon look worse than blood and cheese this is the worst thing they do everybody holds this up as how can you support the blacks they did blood and cheese it's the worst thing that damon does in the war and his life except for maybe the um trying to seduce a young a very very young rhaenyra by a long shot you know it's pointlessly cruel and a stain on his honor and the side of rhaenyra for the rest of the war so Maybe Laris was cheese, and he carried out the murders to escalate the tensions and essentially make supporting them a moral problem by how far they went. And also to make sure that this little scuffle that's going on turns into a full-out war. There's no coming back in this after Blood and Cheese. This is the moment where the Dance of the Dragons could have maybe found a way back to peace. After this, there's no turning back. Everyone's all in. You know, chaos is a ladder, perhaps. Also, if you want to describe more little finger things to this. But Laris did not literally have to be cheese, though, for this to work. You know, he could have allowed it to happen for same reasons. You know, maybe he learned of the plot and was watching as Blood and Cheese made their way through the tunnels. You know, I th when I was reading this, I thought of Tyrion killing Tywin because Varys very helpfully pointed out the ladder to get up to Tywin's room from the uh, from the tunnels through Magor's Holdfast and the Red Keep. So did Varys kill Tywin in a way because he pushed he pointed out very helpfully for Tyrion the way to go. And I bring this up because at this point in the story Mysaria's domain in King's Landing is largely 
the underbelly and the poor parts of the city, like Flea Bottom and the Street of Silk, you know, the area where Damon essentially became king of, more or less. The Red Keep, though, is Alaris's. It would be difficult to sneak in the, red, in the secret passages and escape without him knowing or finding you. And he would be well acquainted with all the rat catchers. That's his job. That this rat catcher is never caught by Laris suggests that there may have been no one to find or that Laris didn't look that hard. He is a torturer. He is a murderer. He seemingly has no limits. Would he allow one of Helena's kids to be murdered in order to do this? Possibly. It certainly does help the Greens' cause. It, it doesn't help them in particular. It doesn't help Helena. It doesn't. It like hurts a lot of them personally, but it helps them gain allies that they can hold up blood and cheese as this terrible thing that Damon and Rhaenyra did. So that is just some crackpot, but I think it's a little strange that this murder happened through the passages that Laris is essentially the king of. Something to think about. Yeah, that's right, Isabel. Varys says, oh no, don't go, Tyrion. If you really want to, the second door after 300 steps, you're doing amazing, sweetie. Yeah, Varys allows Tyrion to kill Tywin. It's possible that even if Laris was not literally cheese, if he was not in disguise, he certainly could have let the murders happen. And then, and there's the, the fact that blood is given over to Laris, and he's the one that delivers all the information back to the court. I mean, who knows if any of that's or how much of it. And also that people give up information under torture that's not true all the time. After 13 days of being tortured by Lara Strong, who knows what blood actually said or what truly happened. We see that Kyburn's torture ends up getting false confessions out of people all the time. Torture doesn't work that way. But yeah, so that's a, a fun thing. That'd be cool if it shows up in House of the Dragon, like... If, if cheese is actually uh, Laris in disguise or he's watching from the shadows as it happens, he's a pretty shitty master of whispers to let that happen under his nose and then not be able to catch cheese. He, sh he should know each member, each rat catcher personally. So seems like something strange was afoot. So the next thing we're going to jump forward to is the dis his disappearance on the riots. There's a lot of stuff we're going to skip over here, but one thing to keep in mind throughout the dance and House of the Dragon is that most of the information the Greens are acting on is largely coming from Laris. You know, troop movements, traitors, plots, rumors, stuff's all coming from him. So when they make big tactical errors or they get caught out or people essentially get screwed, it's natural to wonder if it's Laris who did them dirty personally. Um, not like the faction, the Greens, but individual members. There's no reason to think that there aren't grudges in between them. You know, they're all people. So, you know, did Kristen get hung out to dry by Laris or Aemond who distrusts Laris? Like, did he try and get the members of the faction he doesn't like killed or essentially allowed them to be killed or gave them bad information? That's definitely something Varys does and Littlefinger. So you can imagine the same here. One thing is clear, though, is that King's Landing was about to fall at a certain point. You know, the armies had marched out. The dragons went with them. And it looks like the city's about to be sacked. Why? Because Rhaenyra and Daemon are mounting up with their dragons and their troops, and they're about to take the city. During this, Laris basically saves the green cause outright. This is one of those things that makes you question the other things like, is he just, is he just like uh, trying to survive and he doesn't really care for the greens? Well, this is one of those moments where you have to go like, 
Well, he does care about the cause a little bit. Leon II is largely immobile at this point. He's been burned from the dragon fight against Rhaenys and Maelys the Red Queen. Sunfire is injured, so is Aegon. Varys takes it upon himself to smuggle Aegon II out of the city, along with Princess Jahera and Prince Maelor. Varys splits them all up, and he sends Aegon disguised as a commoner in a fishing boat to hide on Dragonstone. Sunfire later joins him. Uh, Princess Jahera is sent to Storm's End for safekeeping. This is a thing that should come up in the show, too. Laris and the Baratheons have a pretty good relationship for some reason. While he sends Maelor, for some reason, by road, all the way across Westeros to try and reach the High Towers, going from King's Landing all the way to Old Town. That is a really long trip, especially for a kid that literally looks Targaryen with, like, I think he was with a member of a Kingsguard, so that one's suspicious. The Baratheons were... The journey from King's Landing down to Storm's End is relatively safe, but going all the way across the Reach, that's one that I am curious about that decision-making. Why split them up like that? Maelor and the outcome kind of points that way. Maelor's journey ends pretty poorly. Uh, he is murdered and torn to pieces by a mob at Bitterbridge. Jahara makes it safely to Storm's End, as does Aegon to Dragonstone. So if you want to see devotion and in Laris to Aegon II's cause, this is it. Laris could have failed in his mission or traded them to Rhaenyra to save his own life. You know, this speaks to that it's a personal thing against the Blacks and Rhaenyra's side, as this betrayal is so obvious that it must have occurred to him to essentially hand Aegon and his heirs over to Rhaenyra. He could have done that. Why didn't why wouldn't you sell out the king and his heirs? You know, you could end the war that night and be the hero of it. If you've ever seen Inglorious Bastards, it's like Hans Landa when he essentially sells out the rest of the Nazis to the, to the Americans. Like everything Laris needs to switch sides and be rewarded for it is on the table. Betray Aegon, you get everything you want, but Laris doesn't do it. So I think that uh, speaks to the idea that Laris doesn't want to do it, that he doesn't want Rhaenyra to win, that he has some stake in Aegon II's reign, other than personal stuff. Yeah, Inglorious Bastards is a fun movie. Yeah, Hans Landa is also a good comp to Laris Strong. Seriously, end the war. You could do it, Laris. You don't. Why? Why go through all this effort? Again, I think it's he's largely against the Blacks more than he's for the Greens, so he essentially saves the war here. Afterwards, no one knows where Laris went. He does not retreat to Harrenhal, nor is he caught and jailed with the rest of the Greens. Instead, Laris goes full Varys mode. He disappears into the underbelly of the Red Keep in King's Landing, effectively hiding from Mysaria, who then takes over as Mistress of Whispers of King's Landing. Now, given his skills in Varys' comparisons, it's highly likely that he never actually left the city at all after pushing Aegon off in a boat, and that he's been he spends the rest of the war working against Rhaenyra from inside much like Varys does to Cersei. Yeah, I don't understand. It, it makes sense to split up everybody. It doesn't make sense to send Maelor on that journey. That is a really dangerous one, and one that he's likely to get recognized during. Da yeah, the daughter is given a safe one to his preferred allies in the Baratheons. He saves Aegon's life, doesn't really care about Maelor, though. This is the part where I think the Winds of Winter really start showing up in, in Laris's story, because this is exactly what we see from Varys. You know, he creates whisper campaigns and he inflames the general populace at every chance he gets 
to try and rebel against Rhaenyra's reign when she takes back the um when she takes back King's Landing. Other than blood and cheese, which is pinned on Rhaenyra, but she un- she was unlikely to have really anything to do with. It's said in the text that Damon gave the order when he was not with Rhaenyra. It seems like a thing he did on his own. The taxes become a big problem. When Sir Tylan Lannister, Master of Coin, fled the city, he did it with all the crown's remaining gold for safekeeping in Castle Rock. So Rhaenyra takes the city and, dis- and discovers that there's no money left in the treasury. They have no gold. So they have to raid they have to raise taxes on everything to replenish the vaults and pay for the war. Curious here that did not occur to them to go to Essos and get any loans. Or they couldn't get any. So there's a lot we're really going to skip over here. The general message is that everything that happens in King's Landing after Rhaenyra takes over is largely Laris doing sabotage, much like Varys does to Cersei. He's paying off prominent members in the city. He's financing distrust. He's pretending to probably be people. He's leading mobs. He's encouraging whispers and trying to essentially create a social revolution against Rhaenyra. And this all comes to the head to the second fall of King's Landing. Rhaenyra's about to lose the city back to the Greens. Through his efforts, Larys has been effective in turning the people of King's Landing against Rhaenyra. You know, there's small riots and there's uprisings happening all over the place. And there's a growing popularity of a character named the Shepherd, a very strange man who I think is missing an arm who claims to be a prophet and preaches against Rhaenyra and the dragons to ever-growing support. He ends up becoming the most powerful figure in King's Landing, kind of like the High Sparrow. I think that's another connection you're supposed to make. Think of the Shepherd, think of the High Sparrow. Also, there's the defection of Hugh the Hammer and Ulf the White, the two dragon seeds that were on Rhaenyra's side. This is mentioned in the text that this was Laris who did this, again, that he promised them lands and riches if he switched if they switch sides which they did this led to Rhaenyra's escalating paranoia getting the best of her and she ends up trying to arrest Adam Valarion for being a bastard I guess Corlys tips off Adam and Adam escapes Rhaenyra imprisons Corlys in revenge and effectively cuts out the last leg she has as the Valarians are her biggest allies and supporters at this point they are the ones funding the war on her side. Laris's machinations at work, he has effectively turned the power structure of the blacks against each other. The major, though, inciting vent here again has to do with Queen Helena. She supposedly commits suicide right before it looks like the Greens are about to take back the city. She had been taken hostage during all this time, and there's hints from mushrooms that there was a lot of ideas on how they should kill or torture her. Mushroom says that they essentially uh, used her and Allison Hightower, her mother, as sex slaves in the Street of Silk. But the other POVs essentially say, no, that never happened. They don't really know which way to go on that one. But essentially what happens is Helena jumps from her chambers and impales on the spikes in Maelor in uh, Magor's dry moat around the castle. There's a lot of explanations for why she committed suicide. Again, the, the one first is Mushroom's thing, that she was being used for sexual slavery, and that's why she took her own life. Munkin and Eustace say no, never happened. They suggest that they did it, that she did it because Mysaria told Helena how Maelor died, how he was ripped to shreds in Bitterbridge. But a rumor outside of these explanations makes it out in the city, and the rumor mongering is, bla- is blamed on Lair Strong by Mushroom that, that this was actually an execution that was a cruel one Rainier pulled off. Now, this doesn't actually seem to be true at all because. Why would Rhaenyra do that now after all this time? 
she doesn't kill any of the other hostages when she flees the city. Like they're all recovered by the greens, basically unharmed out of the dungeons. So why kill Helena? It doesn't make any sense. Again, I this has to be Laris's doing that he created the rumor, but I go further. If you think that he may have done blood and cheese, maybe he kills Helena here in like completing the blood and cheese thing that because her death specifically inspired the riots and the rumors were spread that it was Rhaenyra's doing. It certainly benefits Laris and the Greens in the fact that it effectively ends her control over King's Landing in a particularly brutal way that is used as propaganda as the city basically burns down. I don't put anything above Laris. I think that he could have been behind Blood and Cheese and he definitely could have been behind Helena's murder here because he uses it so expertly. He could have just been taking advantage of it and just created a rumor out of nowhere. But the re it doesn't it doesn't make sense why Rhaenyra would do it. And I don't know. I think the idea that Helena just had enough, basically. But that was the other thing, is that it looked like the Greens were gonna come save them. So she should have had hope at that point that she was gonna survive. Oh, good call, Dorian's Dame. Helena's death also opens up the possibility of Aegon the second remarrying. Producing more sons. Well, he's not going to be producing more sons. They say that in Fire and Blood, that the dragon's flame roasted certain parts of him. But she's not really... Helena, if you're thinking about her from like a tactical perspective, isn't going to do anything more in the war. Aegon's not going to be able to get her pregnant again. And she's incredibly popular. Like, Helena was beloved by the people of King's Landing. I don't think it's above Laris to use her again as a way to turn the general populace against... Uh, Rhaenyra and Daemon. I've, although I have no problem believing it was suicide, especially after the death of Maelor. And there's a story about that she saw a couple guys being hanged, but then that's also disputed in the text that she could that she wasn't there and she couldn't have seen it. So I don't really know. The one thing at this point, this again speaks to Laris's plan. The regular people are already at a boiling point, and it builds to a crescendo with the storming of the dragon pit. Again, Laris is behind this. He's probably behind the shepherd because amplifying his messages and supporting him as the people of King's Landing stage a full out riot. They storm the dragon pit and kill most of the dragons, including Rhaenyra's Cyrax, her youngest son by Harwin. Joffrey also dies to the mob. He's trying to save the dragons when Rhaenyra refuses. Her counselors end up convincing Rhaenyra to give up the city and escape before they storm the gates. The Greens take advantage. Again, Laris's plan is all working here. These riots are so expertly timed and planned out, and the, and the target of it has been particular interesting. Destroying the dragon pit really, really helps the greens because they are at a dragon disadvantage. So the idea that the shepherd keeps pointing to the dragons and then they end up storming the dragon pit seems more tactical than accidental. One thing to keep in mind here is this could be highly illustrative of what happens to Cersei in the Winds of Winter. The parallels here between Rhaenyra and Cersei, Laris and Varys, Tommen and Joffrey, the fall of the city are all very obvious, as well as maybe what happens next. That, for instance, that Cersei may lose the city and end up fleeing, Tommen dying in the process because of Varys's machinations to help young Griff. Those two seem pretty easy to link together. Instead of the fall of the dragon pit, you know, it may be. There's not the dragon pit's not really the same thing. There may be another mob attack somewhere led by the uh, High Sparrow, who's obviously 
very similar to the shepherd. So again, these just line up really well. Actually, somebody made this point in the um, uh, no, 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 no on the announcement post for this on the channel. They said, I think George scrapped to draft of the winds of winter and turn into fire and blood to not throw everything away. Explain why winds of winter isn't out and why fire and blood is and why it was followed by an apparent, apparent serious progress. George said he wouldn't change the story due to spoiling it. But, but yeah, th- it seems very likely that fire and blood is in part a rough draft for the winds of winter, especially these parts, especially the dance with the dragons part. It seems like this is probably one of the parts of the story he's struggling with the most and maybe one of the parts of the show he liked the least. So he wrote like his own version here. Are you going to see Tom and suffer the fate of Maylor? Maybe Maylor, but maybe Joffrey too. And both of them are basically torn to shreds by a mob. I wouldn't put it past Gurm to do it to him. Yeah, the, the attack on the dragon pit is quite sad to go back and read. Oh, yes. Then we get the moon of the three kings. For the next month, uh, the city descends into anarchy with three kings essentially showing up to claim to be the new rulers of King's Landing. You have Tristane Truefire, backed by Sir Perkin the Flea, claiming to be Viserys the First's son. Oh, uh, wait, no, Viserys. Yeah, that's Viserys the First. Then Gaiman Palehair, who claims to be Aegon the Second's son, and the Shepherd, who's trying to essentially become a religious leader. What's important here for Laris in particular, we're not doing a whole history of the Dance of the Dragons, is that the Shepherd, after the storming of the Dragon Pit and the fall of King's Landing and Rhaenyra getting out, the shepherd loses his support almost immediately. His power basically vanishes. Why does that happen? They were successful. They stormed the dragon pit. They killed a lot of dragons. So shouldn't that increase his support? No, I think this is indicative that the reason for the shepherd's success was Laris because he then shifts his support to Tristane Truefire and Perkin the Flea. Perkin the Flea he may, again, for wins a winner, this may be young Griff and John Connington here. Perkin goes around knighting anyone who joined their cause and stages a relatively organized takeover of the Red Keep in the surrounding areas, which again is suggestive of John Connington, who they may have a limited success taking over King's Landing and installing a potentially fake Targaryen as king. We learn later that the reason for this is Laris, in essence, Varys is supporting young griff and john connington the parallel seems again right on the money he had previously leveraged the shepherd to create chaos to oustry once that was over he moved on and organized tristane's regency through his puppet perkin as a placeholder to protect his holdings in the red keep until the greens returned essentially and we know that because of this line in the books king aegon's master of whispers Lair strong the clubfoot fared much better the Lord of Harrenhal emerged intact from wherever he'd been hiding. Like a man risen from the grave, he came striding through the halls of the Red Keep as if he had never left them. Be greeted warmly by Sir Perkin the Flea and take a place of honor at the side of his new king. Laris was behind all of this. He was behind the scenes. He was organizing the riots. He was organizing who would win the riots and then pick Tristane through Perkin in order to have a regent on the Iron Throne. I would expect to see this almost word for word happen in the Winds of Winter, that Connington and Young Griff will oust Cersei after riots by the faithful, with Varys essentially outing himself at the end, like, ha ha, I did this. I also think the idea of when you compare Perkin to John Connington, 
and uh, Tristane Truefire to Young Griff. I mean, it seems on the nose. But yeah, Laris is behind all of it. He has essentially taken back the city for the Greens. He's essentially just waiting for Aegon II to return or for Jahara to resurface from the Baratheon so that they can continue. Essentially, Laris has eliminated all of his enemies. There's nobody left to oppose him. He's in sole control now. There are other members of the court still there. Otto Hightower is dead at this point, but Alicent Hightower is greatly reduced in her abilities. Most of the Greens counselors have died it's between Kristen Cole and Aemon One-Eye. So it's basically just Laris. Laris wins. He wins the Game of Thrones. Until, until the Hour of the Wolf. The Hour of the Wolf is not great for Laris. Essentially what this is, is in the background of all of this, there has been Lord Cregan Stark. Him, him and his northern soldiers have essentially, and his, his fresh soldiers have linked up with the Riverlanders who have been resisting and created essentially the only army left in Western other than the Baratheons, and they are marching on King's Landing. This is bad news for Laris and Tristane Truefire and basically anyone left on the green side because they don't have any defense anymore. It looks like the Starks are going to show up and sack King's Landing, kill everyone on the green side, and reinstall probably Aegon III, Aegon son of Rhaenyra, who's still alive and being held hostage. As Lord Cregan fought on the side of Rhaenyra. Even after her death, he has not forgotten his oath. He's continuing to go after and punish the Greens. <laughs> yeah. Warhorns and guitar solos going off as Cregan shows up to kill everybody. So what ends up happening, Lara sees this all happening and goes, oh shit, we're screwed. What are we going to do? Well, it turns out the Baratheons are essentially racing Cregan to King's Landing. They have largely stayed out of the war and their army is still intact. So essentially, Laris then manipulates Perkin the Free, Perkin the Flea, and Tristane Truefire and saying like, guys, 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 don't worry about this Cregan Stark thing. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get the Baratheons on our side. We're going to get Jahara back. Everything's going to be great. They'll defend us. What happens? Laris goes to uh, Lord Baratheon and sells out Tristane. He sells out Perkin the Flea, the rest of the Greens, and essentially makes a deal for himself to give control of King's Landing over to the Baratheons to give up everyone who's still all the pretenders on the throne, everyone loyal to Tristane. And out of it, Laris finally, finally gets something for himself. He um, organizes a marriage between himself and one of the, I think the youngest daughter or one of the younger daughters of Lord Baratheon. So Laris at this point finally is making his move. Everyone else is out of the way. It's Laris time. You might suggest this could be a little bit like Littlefinger and Sansa at some point. Perhaps. Well, sort of. There's a, there's a, at a certain point, Aegon II does return after this, after they sell them out. Aegon's reinstated and they essentially try to get everything back together. They're trying to put everything back together. The Winter Wolves are on their way. But the coalition isn't going that great because. As it turns out, they all hate each other, in particular Corlys Velaryon. Corlys is, despite being in the dungeons for a long time, is still a powerful man. And they need to find a way to resist Cregan essentially sacking the city. 
So this is essentially the suggestion from Lara Strong on how they use the Valarians to essentially as a shield against Kriegan. It said, Lara says, he will die soon enough in any case, replied Lord Lara Strong. Let us make peace with him now and make what use of him we can. Once all, once all is safely settled, if we have no further need of House Valarion, we can always lend the stranger a hand. And he goes on to say, another thing, kill the old snake and we lose the young one, Clubfoot said. And all those fine, swift ships of theirs as well. Instead, he said, they must move at once to make amends with Lord Corley's, so as to keep House Valarion on their side. Give him a betrothal, your grace, he urged the king. A betrothal is not a wedding. Name young Aegon your heir. A prince is not a king. Look back at history. Count how many heirs never lived to sit the throne. Deal with Driftmark in due course when your foes are vanquished and your tide is at the full. That day has not come. We must bide our time and speak to him gently. Over compromise. Make deals. Kill them before they can the collect. He uses Corlys essentially at, as not only a as a shield, but also a way to try to convince Cregan of his loyalty. Oh, super chat here from Brian Molesky, $5. Thank you so much. What if Gurren went wild and made Jon Snow a time traveler? Insane would love your take. Bran's the time traveler. I don't think he's going crazy. That one's already on the table. Uh, Bran and Bloodraven are essentially time travelers. But thanks for the super chat. So essentially what happens here is that Laris is trying to organize a way to not only resist Cregan, but a way to coalesce power around the dying Aegon II, basically. But it's for a particular reason. And that is that Laris recognizes that there's no way they're going to survive the, the Riverlands and the Starks. It's out of the question. They're going to lose this, even with Corlys's help. So he counsels them. He counsels them together to make common cause with Corlys saying we'll betray we'll betray Corlys, but at the same time he's saying the same thing to Corlys. he's saying join me and we'll betray them he's trying to essentially put everyone against each other and the actual plan here is to murder Aegon II that Larry that Larry Larry Strong uses Corlys to help him poison and kill Aegon II a dying king at this point to curry favor with Cregan Stark and use Corlys as the way to make sure that he survives the upcoming sack of the city that that he can essentially say look i mean i was always on your side you can tell i killed Aegon the second i'm on the black side look Corlys is vouching for me screw all the rest of the greens we're doing great that's essentially his plan so Aegon the second is poisoned he is killed and essentially nothing happens but laris doesn't stop there he doesn't stop there at trying to make sure Cregan won't kill him. When Cregan arrives with the Riverlanders and the Northern forces, Larys opens the gates and he organizes among the small folk, similar to how he did for the shepherd to essentially throw a parade for the Northerners to essentially say like, Hey, don't sack us. We're glad you're here. Look, we're all on your side. You're the conquering hero. Screw the greens. Everything's great. And it works in a sense that the the northerners do not then go on and essentially sack the city as that would probably lead to total chaos and Larius's death. It is essentially they're surrendering. Larius is surrendering the city while the rest of the greens are going like, oh, shit, we just got sold out. Cregan has none of it. And then we get the hour of the wolf here. He rounds up everyone involved 
with the war and in particular the murder of Aegon II and starts holding trials over the traitors. As predicted earlier, like I said, everyone does turn on Laris and he's hung out to dry. None of his allies stick by him. In particular, Perkin the Flea reveals that everything from the riots to the murder of Aegon was Laris and he was basically behind everything that happened in the city after the fall to Rhaenyra. All the other counselors say the same thing. They all furiously point to Laris as the scapegoat for literally everything. Yes. Oh, blow your air horns for the hour of the wolf. So I'm going to point out here that although this is like a Varys thing, this feels extremely similar to Tyrion's trial, even down to the point that Laris basically doesn't defend himself against it. Regan sends a whole lot. Of, he sentenced basically everyone to death, but they all go, can we, can we go to the wall, Lord Stark? We'll join the Night's Watch. Can we do that? And he says, yeah, thumbs up. Everybody go to the wall, but I don't kill. <laughs> Only two guys actually get killed, and it's Laris and I forget. I think it's a member of the Kingsguard that ends up dying. I think it's the guy that was guarding Aegon who allowed him to be poisoned. Those are the two that actually get beheaded by, by Cregan. So here's the quote on how Laris Strong dies. And it says, next and last to die was Lord Laris Strong. When he asked if he wished to take the black, he said, no, my lord. I'll be going to a warmer hell if it please you, but I do have one request. When I am dead, hack off my club foot with that great sword of yours. I have dragged it with me all through life. Let me be free of it in death at least. The boon, this boon Lord Stark granted him. Thus perished the last strong, and a proud and ancient house came to its end. Lord Laris's remains were given over to the Silent Sisters. Years later, his bones would find their final resting place at Harrenhal, save for his clubfoot. Lord Stark decreed that it should be buried separately in a pauper's field, but before that could be done, it disappeared. Mushroom tells us that it was stolen and sold to some sorcerer who used it in casting of his spells. The self-same tale is told of the torn foot off Prince Joffrey's leg in Flea Bottom, which makes the veracity of both suspect unless we are meant to believe that all feet are possessed of malign powers. The heads of Lord Larestrong and Sir Giles Belgrave were mounted on either side of the Red Keep's gates. So there's definitely a lot of a lot of oddness to the end of Laris's life, where it seems like he may have grown to regret his, his saving of Aegon II at the fall of King's Landing, because here he completely changes his mind. When when the Starks are bearing down on him, when he knows his time is up, when he knows the Greens will sell him out, he instead helps kill Aegon. He tries to use Corlys as a shield. He organizes a parade and then gets screwed by the rest of the Greens anyway. And one thing in particular that dooms him is that he, miss, he underestimates Lord Cregan's essentially devotion to, to honor and justice that he doesn't think logically that he should get that Cregan will see what he did as murder, that he'll see it as a favor, much in the same way when Tywin laid the, the bodies of Rhaenys and Aegon at the feet of Robert, Larys is trying to do here, that he's trying to show loyalty, that he's trying to prove that, hey, you know, I'm on your side. I made mistakes, but look what I did for you. I did you this big favor. Cregan doesn't see it that way. It's the same way that Ned sees Jamie, that he doesn't see Jamie killing the Mad King as a service. He sees it as a betrayal, that he views it as 
a failing of of Lara Strong that he can't be trusted and that he committed murder, even even though it's murder against his enemy. Yeah, that's true, Aaron. Another example of how the North and South really don't get each other. And that's something that should come up in The Wind's Winter. This is something very much that should come up in Littlefinger's story, and there should be something that comes up in Varys' story, that they have trouble dealing with these pesky Northerners and their sense of justice that is much more based around, well, Southern justice tends to be politically motivated, but Northern justice tends to be much more crime, like the actual crime committed rather than how it affects you in particular, that it's the Lord's duty to, even if it's regicide of your enemy, that apparently it's a thing you have to honor. Um, yeah, that's true. How Ned is pissed as hell that Robert's still trying to murder Daenerys. Yeah, that he, it helps him. It helps his side. It would help Robert if Viserys and, Dan and Daenerys were dead. But Ned can't stomach it, and Cregan can't stomach the regicide here. And that, yeah, that should, I would really expect that to come up in Varys and Littlefinger's stories. If you try and chart Larys Strong's and the everything that happens in King's Landing after the riots onto Varys. I mean, that is not a good outcome for Varys and probably not one that he's expecting. Like if Jon Snow shows up in Cregan's shoes, what would he do if Varys hands him over like Cersei or Tom and dead or something like that in order to prove his loyalty? Well, Jon's probably not going to see that well or Bran, either one of them. Northern justice is a very different idea and not one that Varys is equipped to deal with. It's also interesting that he, one thing that I really found interesting about this is the cutting off of his foot. That Laris, in his final moments, he says that the club foot he dragged behind him in life and he found it a burden that he wants to be separated from, that he felt it was a curse on him. And if he wanted to, I think that quote in particular can go back and inform his relationship to perhaps the rest of the Strongs, to Harwin, to Lionel. If it really was something that that he was teased about maybe something he was bullied about it was something that set him apart from the rest of his family that made him unable to fit in the fact that he just he had this deformity not really a big deal but within their family it very well could have so if you're look yeah if you're looking for something that would be something to zero in on his his like one personal thing he said is that his club foot ruined his life well, it can't have ruined his life if there wasn't somebody holding against him. And again, the rest of the strong seem like the obvious case for who did it. Yeah, that's right, Voltaire. John the White Wolf marching on King's Landing and holding another hour of the wolf. That would be pretty interesting. Although there is a question, at least in my mind, if this is meant as, in particular, a draft of The Winds of Winter, or if this is a response to season seven and eight of Game of Thrones. Because... It's going to be pretty anticlimactic if he if the winds of winter comes out and it's just all of this reskinned, like almost the exact actions with the characters subbed in. There should be more to it, but obviously we'll be seeing this in person. We'll be seeing this on the ground. Maybe this is like a rough outline of where he's going. Oh, super chat again from Brian Molesky, five dollars. Thank you so much. A thoughts on the concept in the books. Benjen replaced Eddard at the execution and Eddard lives. Never heard that one. Nope. Benjen's probably dead. If he's not cold hands, Eddard is also super dead. Not coming back, although maybe Rob Stark will. I hope so. I find all this really intriguing about Laris that he's kind of like a distillation of all these different characters in ways that you wouldn't really think. Like 
I think the the idea that Tyrion and Varys get along, it's kind of like Laris is the the bridge between them. You can see where they have things in common and how George loves writing these characters, but he also likes seeing them get their comeuppance. That, you know, there's a sword waiting for Varys's head at the end. Littlefingers too, that all of this is really going to get them nowhere in the end. Um, and it makes them a fascinating character. And what I'm really looking forward to in House of the Dragon, one thing we don't have in Fire and Blood when we're looking at Laris is really a look at him as a person. What is he like on an individual level? Because he's so quiet and he rarely speaks. You only get to see his actions. But I think it would be it's going to be fascinating to see him doing things. He's basically going to be present throughout the entire show, especially if you get more detail on him. Like one of the better adap- things in the adaptation that doesn't show up in the books is Littlefinger and Varys's sparring match, basically in front of the throne. Something like that for Larry Strong is something I would really, really like to see. And I think he also makes the point of you're thinking about Laris as a character is that he is un unambiguously a villain. He is a terrible person. He's a murderer. He's a torturer. He's like Kyburn plus Bloodraven plus Littlefinger and Varys all rolled into one horrible character and character. And yet he's still fascinating. He still pushes the story forward. Personally, I would also like it if he had hand in more things than were shown. And I would love to know the truth of this guy. There's there's parts of it. Other members of family that, you know, Harwin is particularly a fascinating character. He's probably going to die pretty early on. And any characterization we get of him will be through his sons. We don't know a lot about Lionel. It's Laris that George put so much effort into creating this person. I'm personally really looking forward to that in House of the Dragon. Yeah, I agree, Dornish Dame, that if Winds of Winter was just this section of Fire and Blood with different names, we'd have it already. Exactly. So there should be differences, but the parallels are so strong that it's hard not to think about how how some of this is foreshadowing for those characters, even if it doesn't go down exactly the same. So actually, I've been ignoring questions pretty much this whole time because I wrote a really, really long outline. This was 16 pages long. So, you know, throw your questions in the chat. Anything I I overlooked, anything I missed, you know, you guys can at me, bro. Benjamin is Craster's Black Sausage. Yeah, probably. I'm going to scroll up. I probably missed some stuff. Sorry for ignoring the chat. I had a lot to get through, so I was talking kind of fast. I also skipped over quite a lot, but a lot of it is kind of just the same. It's Laris doing things behind the scenes, and the way you can tell he's doing it is by who benefits when it happens. Yeah, it's kind of an outline. It's, it's, I did write most of it. Oh, hey, Daisy. Oh, yeah, two hours late. That's okay. You can watch the replay. What out the story do you believe that no one else does? Like tinfoil theories that I think that nobody else believes? I don't know. Most of the stuff on my channel, I think. I'm not sure how many people are convinced of the idea that Rob Stark will be coming back. I am personally, I mean, after writing and talking about this, I am very curious about Lara Strong's role in Blood and Cheese. That it seems like either he was involved or he let it happen is certainly something interesting. I'm definitely a believer in Amanda's Duncan the Strong idea and all the consequences of that. I think that's a brilliant one. But that's actually not that popular. <laughs> Most people have no problem saying Duncan Brianna related, but making Duncan a Strong is uh, some that one that does not have that high of a uh, belief in the fandom, I will say. No, it totally makes sense. Lopez Land. Do you think Joffrey being killed by... Uh, Queen Rhaenyra's dragon with symbolism for her to get him killed. 
I butchered names. <laughs> Don't worry, I butcher names all the time. I am the worst at names. But yeah, that could be definitely true that if you're thinking of Rhaenyra as Cersei and Joffrey as Tommen, as confusing as that sounds, then the idea that Cersei somehow ends up getting Tommen killed for for her own selfishness is definitely something you could see happen. I mean, they did it in the show with the whole Marjorie subplot thing. That's not going to happen that, you know, Tommen's too young for any of that to happen in the books. But the idea that Cersei's actions end up rebounding on Tommen is definitely I could definitely say what other crazy. T well, I have other tinfoils, but I can't really say them because they're going to be future videos. Ones I have published. Oh, one that I believe in that not many people do. I think that Ghost is also a skin changer slash green seer. That his relationship with John is more two way than one way. It's much, much more an equal relationship. And it also seems like Ghost is as smart as John, maybe smarter. He also seems to understand English sentences or common sentences. He also can somehow connect and reach this. I think he can reach the green realm because there's that dream where John is warging ghost and then ghost is walking around this dream world and then they find Bran. Well, that's through ghost. That makes it seem like he's the, um, the one doing it, not John. That's another crazy tinfoil. I believe in, but I, I think it's interesting that, I think people have more sympathy for Rhaenyra than they do for Cersei and how that ends up manifesting. I'm kind of interested, like is George going to introduce more sympathy for Cersei as her story goes on? That could be interesting. Can't bring myself to think Rob Stark could come back. He says Gambi is nothing but a skeleton by now. Oh, the whites are skeleton. I don't understand that one. I don't understand the, where people were like, he's beheaded and he's a skeleton. This isn't like world of Warcraft rules. Like, George clearly has skeletal remains and peep and characters without heads. They're undead. They're undead. It doesn't really. That one got said so much in response to my Rob Stark one. And I, I just kept throwing my eyes. I'm like, where are these rules coming from? Why does, <laughs> where, where in the story does it say this can't happen? In fact, it's pretty much the opposite. Like the, the skeletal hand that Alistair Thorne tries to bring to King's Landing and it just keeps moving. Like what's the difference between that and if Rob Stark came back? I don't know. Another question from Lopez land. Do you think there are any hidden dragon eggs underneath the red keep? That is one that has been bouncing or been suggested for quite a while. We know there's, I think there's some stone ones on Dragonstone. I think is that in a Stannis chapter or something. I think there are still some left there, but they're totally, they've turned, totally, ah, turned to stone, but there's definitely the idea um, that there's a lot of secrets down beneath the red keep that Varys still has to essentially uncover. I mean, we've just seen so little of it. There's no telling all those passages that Magor put in and the way that people are going to sort of pop out of everywhere. It definitely suggests the idea that there are probably like secret vaults deep underground. I wouldn't be surprised to see there are dragon eggs, although that would be a little confusing if they're down there. Wouldn't, they, wouldn't Varys have given them to Viserys and Danny? Although maybe that's where they got them from. I was under the impression that the three eggs that Illyrio has came from Alyssa Farman, but it's definitely a suggestion. If whites could be killed by beheading, it would be easier. Yeah, it would be like they try to kill whites in a bunch of different ways. And it's really hard to do it because they're actually skeletons. Like a lot of them, they basically have very little flesh left on their bones. They're zombies. So I think it's like, I think it's, what is it? The walking dead rules where if you shoot them in the brain, then they die. But 
That's not how George's zombies works. I don't think they don't rely on brains. They, I think they're like puppeted. It's definitely a maze under the red keep. I would like to see more of it. Maybe Connington will go down there with Varys. That'd be kind of cool. Let's see. Dornish Dame says, do you have any, have you, do you have, have you heard of any interesting fan guests or layers on House of the Dragon? I'm not good at fan guests. Like actually somebody pointed out that on Twitter, when I posted the Laris strong image that they said that the colorized Laris looks a lot like, looks a lot like Bronn looks like, what's his name? Bronn. I'm so bad. Uh, Jerome Flynn. And it's not wrong. Jerome Flynn would probably make a pretty good strong. If you're at least going by the images and fire and blood, I haven't heard of any casting of him. We also haven't heard of any casting for Harwin. Lionel, maybe a lot of the kids seem to have been cast though, or at least they're showing up in the, the set photos. I am curious when they're going to start releasing more information about the Strongs. I know they're doing the Game of Thrones convention in February in Vegas. I think that's when it is. I imagine they'll be revealing a lot of stuff there. I mean, I'm not going because COVID, like going to a convention now seems not a good idea if you don't want to possibly catch the Delta variant or COVID-19. But hopefully they do like online stuff we can watch. I would love to see who they're going to cast for Laris. They should probably, they're probably going to put a lot of effort into that casting because he's going to be around for a long time in the show. I think that's about it. If you guys don't have any last questions, throw in there. I know I started a little bit late and then we'll be getting out of here. I got stuff to do like the, um, Rio Westeros going live at five. And then I got to do my dying of the light chapter six stuff. Got to get that done for the 15th or close to yeah, Illyrio and Varys' whole plans are very silly. George makes fun of it, too. In A Dance with Dragons, he has the Golden Company make fun of Illyrio by proxy making fun of him about how his plan's always changing. Because, yeah, if you try and track Illyrio and Varys' plans from A Game of Thrones to A Dance with Dragons, they really don't make a lot of sense. I think those are one of the places where George's gardening style essentially does the worst because it is almost incomprehensible how how much their plans change and eventually george just has to go like well things keep going wrong so that's why they change not that they were silly to begin with see here i'm not going yeah i'm not going to a con anytime too. i have to get my booster soon i actually got my my vaccine a while ago because i i work for a local hospital system and they made us get it very very early on i went, well i won't it was available to us very early on to um, make sure that we we're not passing it to patients or anything. I'm not, I'm not like a doctor or anything like that, but I do have to be around patients. So hopefully I'll be getting my boosters. Voltaire, the gold flame, Joe, do you think that Nerys and Aemon, the Dragonite are sort of inverse parallel to Cersei? Thoughts of Jamie and Cersei being tarred bastards, but Tyrion is a trueborn. Well, those are some big topics. I aim the Dragonite and Nerys. I think, yeah, you're definitely supposed to think of parallels between them and Cersei and Jamie. But also, yeah, here with Rhaenyra and Damon, but also then Rhaenyra with Harwin and Rhaenyra and Lanor. George really loves the idea of these royal couples hooking up with people they're not supposed to. It's like bad behavior among them. I'm, I don't know if I believe the Neris Aemon stuff, if they actually, they actually went to the bone zone or if it was just a thing that Aemon was always very sad about it. Because that requires you to believe that Aegon the Unworthy was correct. And he's generally framed as wrong and a giant prick about everything. So I don't know about that one. Thoughts on Jamie and Cersei being Targ bastards, but Tyrion is trueborn. My thoughts on Tyrion Targaryen and then Jamie and Cersei Targaryen are that on both cases, 
I gen I tend to think that they're both actually just Tywin and Joanna's. But I think this is one of those places where George left himself lots of room to make either of those true if he felt like it. There's enough foreshadowing and there's enough groundwork done for both of those pairs that if by the end he decides one way or the other, like he could just flip it. He could just be like, well, you know, at first I thought Tyrion was the Targaryen, but I'm going to make him Tywin's actual son. And now I'm going to use the Jaime and Cersei foreshadowing or use both or neither. I think that's kind of the thing with his gardening style is that it's rather than an exact plan into the future, he's really good at improvising. He's really good at using previous writing for new purposes. So I think that's a very fertile area for him. He can do either or both or none, and it would all work because of the way he wrote it. That's right. <laughs> the one thing Aegon Fourth was actually right about, Neris and Aemon, wouldn't that be a thing? of the Fourth. Amazingly, my brain knew what you were saying, even though you mistyped it horribly. Like it just read Aegon. I'm like, yeah, that's what she means. Another one from Brian Molesky. Thank you, Brian. $10. What would be preferred ending? Who sits where? Who is the king and queen? Well, Bran's going to be king in the end. My preferred ending is the one that George writes. I don't, re- I don't really have a particular one I want to see because it's his imagination that I like reading and I like exploring. He has such a brilliant mind for it and a way with words and a way of making these things all work and feel, you know, tragic and bittersweet. Also somehow satisfying, even while he's gut punching you that whatever his ending is, whatever details it has, that's what I want to read. I don't think I could come up with a better one than he can. I, it's kind of a cop out, I guess, but I don't read his work to, to make up my own, basically. Um, I want to see his ideas. I guess that's my way of answering that. It would be like George to have Aegon the Fourth be right about one thing. Blackfire Rebellion. get a war between two bastards all along. Yeah, he does like doing that stuff. I think that's probably about it. Thank you guys for hanging out this Saturday with me, talking all about Lara Strong. I hope you guys are excited as I am to see him in House of the Dragon and whatever foreshadowing his character holds for the Winds of Winter. Make sure you do all the things, you know, if you enjoyed the content, you know, subscribe, like, share, do all the things. If you want to support me, there's Super Chat. Actually, another one just came in as I was saying that from Brian Molesky. You can support me on Patreon as well at patreon.com slash Magician. Look for around the 15th chapter six of the Dying of the Light read through to come out. Next week, I'm off. I won't. I have to work. So no stream. It'll be in two weeks. And actually, let's do something for the comments. What's... That's a good question about Laris for the comments. All right, here we go. Do you think that Laris Strong had a hand in or actually outright did murder Arwen and Lionel? Put that in the comments of this video. I'm kind of curious what people think. I mean, it's such an open question and it's such a good question too. That's kind of what Fire and Blood is. It's a series of questions based on incomplete information. And George challenging you to weave their way in between them. Yeah, throw that in the comments. It is Laris responsible for the death of Harwin and Lionel. I will see you guys in a couple weeks.